So we are indeed starting a new teaching series on the book of Ephesians. So this would be my encouragement. Um, grab your Bibles or grab your smartphones. Um, do a Google search, Ephesians 1, and we're going to make our way through the first half of Ephesians 1. And over the coming six or seven weeks as we journey through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, again, I want to encourage you, bring your Bibles week by week so that we can track through this incredible letter together. So some introductory marks as we launch in. Number one, um, the biblical text has creative power. So in a, in a moment like this, we're opening up the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. And I want to encourage you to bring anticipation to a moment like this. Like, I know what you're like because I know what I'm like. It is so easy just to dial out. These are just more words, more words, more words. But what if we believed what Paul believed about the Scriptures, what the Scriptures declare about the Scriptures, that all Scripture is God-breathed? That's what Paul said. Um, he wrote a letter to his buddy, Timothy. Timothy was the lead pastor in Ephesus um, where this letter was written to. And he says, Timothy, I, I need you to know that all scripture is God breathed. In other words, it carries the breath of God within it, inspired by God, right? Written down by Paul as, as he's sort of wanting to write this letter to the church in a very specific context at a very specific time. Um, but there's power in these words. So remember the story that we are formed by, the story of God's engagement with creation. It begins with God declaring these words, let there be light and there is light. And then he speaks the world and it comes into being. So when we read this text, God is speaking to us as a church and he's speaking to you as an individual and he's wanting to call forth life, right? So we should be leaning in, not with a kind of half-assed mentality of like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But like leaning in, like maybe there's a word God wants to speak over me that could kickstart new life in my life. So these words that we're going to read carry the power of life and death. And therefore, they need to be handled with care. Like whenever we're reading the scriptures, we need to handle them with care. So here's a little rule that people use to help them in, in their work of interpreting the scriptures. And a little phrase, a text without a context is just a pretext. Which basically means as, as we read the scriptures, you can rip a verse out of its context and you can pretty much use it as a pretext to say whatever you want to say. Um, I've just come back from South Africa where Zach, our local missions pastor, myself and my son Benj spent a week um, in Manenberg just outside Cape Town, uh, some time in Durban with Live Village and working with a charity called Soul Action um, and reminded, having worked there as a youth pastor in the back end of the 90s, yes, I'm that old, um, of, of basically the effect of the apartheid. And decades and decades later, you, you realize the evil of that regime and the effects of it many, many years later. And what's more tragic is people use the Bible to justify the separation between the blacks and the whites and to dehumanize people in the process. Like this can happen, right? And we can't just point out figures um, in human history that did this. We're all capable of doing this. Taking a scripture, ripping it out of context and getting it to say whatever we want to say to suit our own agenda. So how do we avoid that? How do we read the Bible contextually? Well, here's, here's a, a um, vehicle that I use um, to do this. And I've, I've nicked this from a theologian called Terence Fretheim. He's an Old Testament scholar. And he basically says, look, when you read scripture, three worlds are colliding. 
right? The world behind the text, the world of the text, and the world in front of the text. So we have the scriptures, hopefully in our hands, on our phones, up on the screens. And the text itself connects us with Paul writing to the church in the first century in the context of Ephesus and Asia Minor. Um, and it connects that world with our world. Here we are in London 2023. And this text connects us. The same words that Paul wrote to the church then, we're reading now. Now, to read the Bible contextually, right, before we just read it and apply it to our lives, like the short 15-minute sermon, three points beginning with B. I know some of you love that kind of sermon, particularly the 15-minute part of it, um, right? And I'm sure there'll be some sermons in this series where all the points begin with P. Um, but before we just read the text and apply it, read the text and apply it, right? What we actually have to do is read the text and ask the question, what was Paul actually trying to say? to the people in a specific context, in a specific place, at a specific time? What was he saying to them? Before we can do the work of translation, what would he want to say to us? So what would he want to say to the people in Ephesus? That's his intended audience. He's writing with them in mind, what they're going through in mind, right? That's his intended audience. We're reading it, his unintended audience, right? Trying to recognize what would the spirit want to say to us? us through these words because these words carry the breath of God they're inspired by God so we look back what was Paul trying to say um, the world behind the text and then we look forward what does this mean for us how do we live out these realities in the here and now and that's what we're going to try and do so we're going to start with the world of the text are you ready about three of you are, that's encouraging. But we're, we're going we're gonna to jump into the world of the text. Lean in, remember, these words have creative power. Right? God is speaking right now. Dead things could start living in this room if we were to lean in and engage. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just an intro that sets up the whole letter. Basically, all of the key themes of the letter are contained within this intro. So let me just articulate some of them. Number one, he says, to the holy people in Ephesus, to the saints in Ephesus. Now, he's going to address in this letter unsaintly behavior, right? The people are lying and they're stealing from one another. Um, and there's bitterness that's crept into some of the believers in the context of Ephesus. And he's going to engage with masters that are mistreating their slaves and husbands that are mistreating their wives and parents that are mistreating the children. He's going to address some pretty unsaintly behavior. But he doesn't say to the naughty boys and girls in Ephesus or, or to the sinners in Ephesus or the unrighteous ones. He says to the saints, to the holy ones. When God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees a saint, someone dressed in the righteousness of God. Now, we're acutely aware of our brokenness and all the fractures and our sinful mindsets and, and patterns of behavior. But God says, no, you're a saint. You're a holy one. So I, I just want to speak that word over you when it comes to your identity. You're a saint. You're a holy one. Now, this this contains a key idea for Paul about what spiritual formation is really like, what discipleship's really like. It's not becoming something you're not. It's becoming who you already are in the eyes of Jesus. It's not becoming something you're not. It's becoming who you already are in the eyes of Jesus, right? So Paul is going to address some behaviors that need to be addressed, but he wants to remind the church in Ephesus, this is who you really are. You are holy ones, carriers of the fire of his presence. He, you are saints. Now become who you already are. Some of us need to hear that this morning. You're a saint, right? This isn't to the naughty boys and girls in King's Cross, to the saints in King's Cross. 
And then he basically articulates something about their identity of where they're located. He says, you are in Ephesus and you are in Christ Jesus. Both and, not either or. You are in Ephesus, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, let's just go behind the text, the world behind the text. This is loaded language. Ephesus was a Roman colony, right, in Asia Minor. Now, Roman colonies were like outposts of Rome, helping spread the empire throughout the earth. Now, there, there are three key features of a Roman colony. So whether this is Philippi or Ephesus or wherever else, if you were to enter a Roman colony, you'd notice it basically just feels like Rome, that people are forced to, to basically observe the culture of Rome, which means dressing like the Romans. Togas, ever been to a toga party? Um, so they were dressing like the Romans. They were speaking the language of the Romans. They were speaking... Latin. So they were behaving like the people in Rome. Secondly, they were worshipping like the people in Rome. They were proclaiming Caesar is Lord. In other words, we surrender to Caesar, the emperor. And thirdly, they knew their task was to push forward the purposes of Rome throughout the earth. And and Paul is basically saying in, in the intro, you are not primarily citizens of Rome. You are citizens of heaven, right? So, so you need to clothe yourselves with the, the wardrobe of the kingdom of God. He basically unpacks this later in the letter of like, put off your old self, the old items of clothing that don't fit your new identity. Put on the new clothes, right? Dress like the people of heaven. Speak the language of the people of heaven. In other words, love. And you do not bow the knee to Caesar. You bow the knee to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. The most subversive political statement in the first century. Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the people um, knew what Paul was saying is that if you are citizens of heaven, you are pushing forward the rule of re- and reign of heaven in the context of Asia Minor, in the context of, of Ephesus. You're establishing the kingdom of God, creating a colony of heaven, an outpost of heaven in the context of Asia Minor. So, This is pointing towards what will be a key theme in this letter, which is the reconciliation of heaven and earth. You are citizens of heaven, you're residents of Ephesus. You're citizens of heaven, you're walking this out in the context of London. And we're going to unpack that throughout the series. Um, Thirdly then, he says, grace and peace to you. Now, there are two big greetings in the context of the ancient world where Paul was writing this letter. The Greeks, when they bumped into each other, they would say, grace be upon you. Greek word is charis, like charis. Um, The greatest longing for the the Greeks was to to know favor, to be marked out by favor. And when they bumped into people, they'd just speak that blessing over you, like favor, like grace be upon you. Really beautiful, right? Um, The Jewish community had a different blessing. When they saw people in the street, they would say shalom, which was the greatest longing of the Jewish people to be marked out by the the wholeness, um, the peace of God, the the fullness of the the kingdom of God. So when they bumped into people, they say shalom, right? Now this trumps all of our greetings. When we bump into people, it's like, hi, what does that even mean? Or worse than hi, hey, hey, it's, it's you. Hey, it's you. Like, what does that even mean? Um, And Paul basically says to the people in Ephesus in the context of the church, he basically says, grace and peace is yours in Christ Jesus. Everything the Greeks are longing for to be marked out by favour, everything the Jewish community is longing for to be marked out by shalom, it is all yours, a double blessing in Jesus Christ. So when they met with one another, it wasn't like, hey, it's you. It's like grace and peace 
Mark out your life. Karis, shalom, fullness, may it be yours. But there's something else going on here. Paul is giving a clue as to what this reconciliation will look like. Heaven and earth being reconciled will mean reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles, right? The Jews and the Gentiles are going to become one family. The dividing wall of hostility is going to be broken down. Like this is everything that we long for and everything a multicultural city like ours longs for, right? But the only way you get racial reconciliation, the only way you get this picture of like beautiful diversity is if there's something to unite around and that's something to unite around is the person of Jesus. And this is why you get a picture of it in Revelation 7. Every tribe and tongue gathered around the lamb that was slain around Jesus. If you take away that focal point of unity, the diversity completely falls apart, right? So Paul is, is basically saying that there's racial reconciliation going on here around Jesus, around the cross. Let's move on. Um, verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one that he loves. Let me pull out a few things here then. He has blessed us. Again, this is everything that the Jewish community were longing for. Go back to the beginning of the story. God creates humanity in his image and likeness. What's the first thing he does? He blesses them, right? When he redeems Israel from slavery in Egypt, he leads them to Mount Sinai. They, they enter into a covenant relationship with God. What's the first thing he does? Tough question, but yeah, he blesses them, right? So, so he, he blesses them and says, right, I, I want to draw you into my blessing, the fullness of life that's found in me. What's the first thing that Jesus does when he arrives on the scene? He ascends the mountain a little bit. Someone said, bless, very good. So, there's a nerd in the room. Um, what is it? First thing he does, he blesses them. He ascends the mountain a little bit like ascending Mount Sinai and he gives a sermon on the mount and he basically announces blessing. Like blessed are the the poor and blessed are the meek and blessed. And, and he's just announcing blessings. Like we long to live under blessing for our lives to be marked out by blessing. And, and Paul says, every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not like a little, you know, trickle of blessing. It's like every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ Jesus. We don't understand or live in the reality of just how blessed we really are. Every spiritual blessing is ours. I read this story of this guy, an American guy, who, who won the lottery, um, $65 million. That's a good win. It's a good win. This is the painful part of the story. He lost the ticket. He was throwing out some stuff and accidentally threw out the ticket. Heartbreaking moment. Now, basically, he had a receipt. Um, so he took it to the, the key people and they said, look, we've got the receipt, but we actually need the ticket. So 365 days we need to set aside. This is policy. If someone finds your ticket and they bring the ticket, the 65 million is theirs, right? Um, but if they don't, in 365 days, the 65 million is yours. Now, that's a fairly stressful year. And, <laughs> and a year of searching every rubbish dump that you could possibly find to, to, to find the ticket. Now, the good news is, he won the 65 million, right? But in this article, it basically um, names that hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds or dollars are unclaimed every year. There are people walking the streets of New York 
walking the streets of London um, and if, if they only realised that they'd bought a ticket that won the lottery, they would suddenly be millionaires, but they don't even recognise it. That's a painful picture, but I think it is a picture of, of sometimes how we operate in the church, walking around unaware that every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't prosperity gospel nonsense, right? That if you follow Jesus, life will be easy. You're going to be minted. That's nonsense, right? But, but this is the things that matter most in life like reconciliation between you and God and healing at a soul level and living with purpose and being marked out by grace and knowing that you're truly loved and you've been adopted into a family and it just goes on and on and on. Every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. How amazing is that? For he chose us in him for adoption to sonship. This is just one of the blessings. Chosen to live in family. Now, again, let's just go to the world behind the text. This is a picture of the ruins of Ephesus. You'll notice the hills in the, the background. Now, there was a practice in the first century across the Roman world, but prevalent in Ephesus called exposure, which is when a father um, received a child, um, they would present the child, the baby, to the father. And if the father didn't like what he saw, he could reject the child. If it wasn't the right gender that he was hoping for, normally a son to be an heir in that context, or if it had a blemish or a disability or just didn't like the look of it, the father could say, no, take it away. And what would happen is they would take these babies to one of these hillsides outside the city gates of um, Ephesus and it would be exposed to the elements, hence the language of exposure. That normally meant it would be um, you know, attacked by wild dogs, wild animals, or exposed to the elements in terms of hypothermia or, or whatever else. Everyone knew about exposure, like one of the brutal realities of life in the first century. Um, but everyone was also aware of, of something that the, the Christians were doing in Ephesus. This was the, like their mission trip beyond the city gates. They would head out to the hills. You can see them in the background. And they would find any baby on that hillside and adopt them into their own family and raise them as their own child. Like an amazing picture of adoption into family that the Christians were doing. I, again, I've just been in South Africa. We were on Live Village, which is this orphanage that is basically taking orphans and adopting them into a family on this beautiful, beautiful village. And we heard the story of this one kid who got bitten by a black mamba snake on, on the village, which meant for the rest of the time on the village, I was totally terrified. <laughs> my, my eyes were on the stalks. I'm not even joking before bed. I did a search of that little hut that we were in just to check. Every time he moved, I was like... But anyway, this, this child was bitten by this snake. Um, and if you're bitten by a black mamba, like if you don't get treatment, there's 100% um, that you're going to die. Right, those are the survival rates. No one survives. Zero percent survival rate. So they take this child to to the hospital, and the whole village is praying. Like, have they got there in time? Is he going to make it? The chances are small, but everyone's praying. And Titch, who's one of the kind of like grandfather figures of the village, said to this guy Jonathan, who's like with his wife running the village. Um, they're in the hospital, and the fees are really expensive to treat this child. And Titch just says to Jonathan. You do whatever you need to do. Whatever you would do for your son, you need to do for this little boy. We've got to do whatever it takes. So they throw money at it. They get everyone praying. And miraculously, he survives. Right? And one night, we had dinner with him. And it's this beautiful moment. But it, it's a, a picture of the power of being adopted into a family. 
where where you're you're treated with such dignity and such love. Paul's basically saying to the church in Ephesus, you know the harshness of the world we live in, where babies are just thrown on on basically hillsides. That's not our story. God has adopted us into a family. What the Christians are doing for these babies in Ephesus, that's what God has done for us. He's adopted us into a family. Now just think of the, the landscape we exist in right now in terms of London and the levels of loneliness and climbing suicide rates and the orphan spirit that dominates in a city like London. Imagine if people realized they're millionaires in Christ. Like every spiritual blessing is available in Christ Jesus. And one of these blessings is that we've been adopted into a family. When you grab hold of this, not just at head level, but at heart level, it, it transforms your life. Um, Paul wants to emphasize all of this is in Christ. It's not hard work, being good boys and girls and earning favor. It's all gift. It's in Christ. He chose us in him. He predestined us through Christ. It's in the one that he loves. This is all in Christ, right? When you position yourself in Christ and recognize you're seated with him in the heavenlies. Now, just one minute on predestination, because I know this could be potentially unbelievably boring. Um, but we have a, a kind of caricature of what predestination looks like, that God predestines some for eternity in his presence and some for not eternity in his presence. And you get this picture of God before the creation of the world saying, yeah, let's create him. Yeah, lovely guy. Yeah, eternity with me. Oh, I find him quite annoying. Yeah, let's leave him out. She's brilliant. Yeah, she's going to do great things. Yeah, she's in. No, does she irritate you? She massively irritates me. Let's leave her. And you get this picture, right? And it, it's kind of like really difficult. How could a loving God like create people and predestine them for eternity outside of his presence? Um, that's a real challenge to get your head around it. Karl Barth summarizes predestination like this. Um, on the grounds of Ephesians 1, he says, Christ is the predestined one. Let's stop arguing, are you in, are you out? Christ is the predestined one. In Christ, chosen in him, predestined through Christ. It's in the one that he loves. In other words, when you say yes to Jesus, you enter his chosenness. You enter into his identity as a son, beloved son of the father, beloved child of the father, our chosenness comes from saying yes to Jesus and entering into his chosenness, right? In Christ, you're predestined for eternity in his presence. Every spiritual blessing, it's unbelievable. Let's keep reading verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. Can you hear the excitement in these words that Paul is articulating? It's just so much goodness. The riches of his grace lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven heaven and on earth under Christ. Um, here's the two ideas, the big ideas. This is about reconciliation between heaven and earth, and that happens through the cross, right? This is the work of the cross. Now, there, there has always been a meeting point between heaven and earth. Like the best way to think of heaven isn't up there with angels, drinking Red Bull, all of that stuff. Think of heaven as the place where God lives. And that's why for those that can remember Belinda Carlisle, she was right when she said, ooh, heaven is a place on earth. And for that 80% of the room who have no idea what I'm talking about, you go home, you go into Google, and you type Belinda Carlisle, ooh, heaven is a place on earth, and that is a track. That, that, is, a, that is a song, right? So heaven is where God 
dwells and his purposes exist. And therefore, there are moments when heaven touches earth. Salvation and physical healing and deliverance and freedom. These are moments where the kingdom of God is at hand. The rule and reign of heaven is breaking into the here and now. But even post the fall, there's always been a meeting point of heaven and earth. So let's just track it very quickly through the biblical narrative. Um, Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 is the meeting point of heaven and earth. The intersection between heaven and earth. And the purpose for Adam and Eve and their offspring was to extend Eden until Eden filled the whole earth, right? But then the fall kicks in. Post-fall, um, God liberates Israel from Egypt and adopts them to be his child, his treasured possession. He says, I'm going to dwell amongst you. I'm going to journey with you. I'm going to go on a camping trip with you, right? God loves camping. Loves camping. He says, I'm going to camp with you as you journey through the wilderness. And, and there'll be a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the place of God's presence, the meeting point of heaven and earth. When they get to the promised land, they actually build a temple. And the temple is the meeting point of heaven and earth. So where would you go if you wanted to present an offering to God? The temple. The answer is always going to be the temple. Where, where would you want to go if you wanted to receive forgiveness for your sins and make a presentation to the high priest? You'd go to the? If you wanted to go and worship, where would you go? Very good, very good. So fast forward to Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus says, I'm the new temple. In other words, I'm the new meeting point of heaven and earth. So where would people go if they wanted forgiveness? They'd go to Jesus because Jesus starts forgiving sins. And healing breaks out all around Jesus. And heaven breaks out all around Jesus. People begin to bow down and kiss the feet of Jesus. That's an act of worship. Jesus is the new temple. And it all pushes forward to the cross. This moment, the climactic moment of reconciliation. Paul says, in him we have redemption. In other words, this reconciliation through his blood. And through his blood, sins have been washed away and death has been defeated and darkness has been overcome. Reconciliation can break out. But follow the story forward because Paul says to the church in Corinth and therefore would say to us, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Like you're a meeting point of heaven and earth, right? Heaven should be breaking out all around you. We carry the message of the cross within us. Heaven should be breaking out all around us. Um, and how does the story conclude the full reconciliation of heaven and earth? Jesus returns to finish what he started. Um, all things made new. And in the context of King's Cross, it looks a bit like this. You'll see this artwork downstairs in our cafe. It's basically Revelation 21, the streets lined with gold in the context of King's Cross. This is the future of King's Cross. You know, when we worship and we have those gold streets in the background, if you're new, you're probably thinking, what are those annoying moving gold things, right? That's gold moving through the streets of King's Cross. As we worship, God is renewing and restoring King's Cross. So how do we play our part in this process? Um, year one of our story as a church, um, the borough commander of the local police rocked up at KXC. We weren't in trouble. He was a Christian and wanted to come and hang out with us. So I, I interviewed him and, and he said, look, this is your vision. You know, the renewal of all things. He said, can I give you a bit of, you know, wisdom as to how you go about it? He said, I want to tell you about Lockhart's principle, right? And this is um, a principle that helps police officers when they arrive at the scene of a crime to determine what's gone on and how do they catch the criminals. And the principle goes like this, every contact leaves a trace. Every contact leaves a trace. So if someone breaks in to your house, right, if they smash through a window and then had to climb through, there's a very good chance they're going to leave traces of their clothing on the window. There's a very good chance they'll cut themselves and there might be some blood somewhere. 
there's very good chance that there will be fingerprints and there will be footprints. Every contact leaves a trace, right? He says, this is what it's like in the kingdom of God. You're carriers of his presence. You're carriers of fire. Every contact leaves a trace. In other words, redeemed people carry redemption. When, when you allow God to be at work redeeming you, in other words, liberating you, you know, freeing you, filling you with kingdom life, you will carry redemption wherever you go. Think of all the, the contacts, the connections, e- even on your way to church this morning, right? Some of you on the tube chatting to people if you're friendly. You know, then you, you walk from the station interacting with people. You grab a coffee on the way here because you don't back our coffee. I know what some of you are like. Um, so you go to other coffee shops and pay for coffee rather than have the free coffee that we're serving. I know what you like. Complete waste of money. Anyway, um, in those little connections, every contact leaves a trace. You're carrying redemption. You can't help but pass on something of a redemptive story wherever you go. Final section of the passage. We're coming into land, don't worry. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth the gospel of your salvation when you believed you were marked in him with a seal a promised holy spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory that there's a lot in there. Let me just pull out a couple of quick things. In him, remember, in Christ, we were also chosen. A closer translation of the Greek would be, in him, we've obtained an inheritance. Right? So this text, Ephesians 1, is loaded with Exodus imagery. The story of the people being liberated from slavery in Egypt, journeying towards the promised land. That's the, the redemptive story that has shaped the imagination of the Jewish community. So when Paul says, in him we've obtained an inheritance, he's basically saying, in Christ, we've been set apart for a promised land. And the promised land isn't a particular land, in other words, the land of Canaan. It's the new heavens and the new earth. You've been set apart for the new heavens and the new earth. Um, So how do we journey towards the promised land? Do we have a map? Tough crowd. No. So we have a guide. That's what we regularly say at KXC. We don't have a map. We have a guide, right? We're not just executing a plan. We have the equivalent of a cloud by day and a fire by night leading us through the wilderness. And if we stay close to the presence, he will lead us to abundance. So Paul says, how do we get to this inheritance? He says it's through the promised Holy Spirit. And he is a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. Now, the Greek word there for a deposit is arabon. Now, in modern Greek, an arabon is an engagement ring, right? So when you get engaged, you have an engagement ring that points towards this covenant that you're about to make, about to get married. So Paul's basically saying the gift of the Spirit points towards the new heavens and the new earth, this life that is to come. But that doesn't really capture what Paul was trying to say, because in ancient Greek, an arabon isn't necessarily just an engagement ring. It's, it's a deposit you make when you're buying land. A little bit like when you get a mortgage, you pay 10% as a deposit, right? And your deposit isn't disconnected from what you're purchasing. It's the first part of it. Like you own 10%. You've got a 
down payment. You've got a, a foretaste. It's going to take some time to pay off the mortgage. But basically, this is the first part of what is to come. And Paul says the gift of the Spirit in your community, in your life, it's like a down payment. It's a foretaste of what is to come. So if you allow the Spirit to be at work in your life, He's going to move you in the direction of the new creation. He's going to bring freedom to your life and a greater measure of healing and set you apart for a purpose. And he's going to draw you into this sense of, I'm part of a family. I'm not an orphan. I'm not isolated. Like I'm in a family. The Spirit will do all of these things in your life. So the question is, are you partnering with the work of the Spirit? Or are you inattentive to what the Spirit's doing in your life? So let me land with the world in front of the text. We've looked at the text, had a little sneak preview in the world behind the text. Let's just land here, world in front of the text. Three questions to land on. Where do you find your identity and belonging? Some of you need to hear this word spoken over you. You are saints. You're holy ones. You are seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. You're not forgotten. And you're not an orphan. You've been adopted into a family. Do you understand who you really are? You've been gifted redemption. Free gift. Second question. Where are you currently in need of redemption? Right? Redeemed people carry redemption. Like where you've experienced healing in your life and freedom in your life, there will be a trail behind you of people that are inspired by that and have faith that God could do the same in their life, right? If you're allowing God to be redeeming you in an ongoing sense, you can guarantee there'll be a domino effect that others will see it and be like, I want more of that and begin to follow in your footsteps. Like, where is God bringing redemption to your life? Um, and the final question, where is the spirit most active in your life? Where is the spirit stirring stuff within you? Because I find that, a lot of the time we're totally inattentive to the work of the Spirit. And if I was to ask you, where's the Spirit active in your life? I think most in the room would say, no idea. Right? Just not been observing, just no idea. Some would be, yeah, I'm aware, but I'm not on board. What if you were aware and on board? If you were aware and on board, do you know what the trajectory would be? Towards the new heavens and towards the new earth. You'd be stepping into a greater measure of freedom and wholeness and life, grace and peace be upon you.